Today we're going to continue our uh, series, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We are officially now on our second half a year. We've been on this for exactly half a year and starting a new half a year. This is the 27th lesson today. And we are looking at eight elements uh, of a more biblically complete gospel. Many uh, have pointed out that the gospel since the Civil War in America has progressively and steadily become more and more incomplete, more and more reductionist, less and less a full and complete biblical message. And so uh, there's, you know, there's lots of uh, writers, theologians, etc., who comment on that. So what we're really trying to do here is uh, rediscover and restore a more complete gospel. So in the first 20 weeks, we looked at elements zero through four that are on Roman numeral one on your outline there. And we tried to emphasize at least one major point with each of them. Like, for instance, when we looked at God, uh, a, big, a big problematic situation in our culture today is that we have uh, what many are calling a man-centered Christianity. We have a pretty low view or pretty, uh, a, a God that's less than God and a God that's not all that important. Uh, then when we look at man, we have much too exalted of a position view of man, and especially when it comes to the depth of man's sin. And when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we've misunderstood those and thrown them out the window altogether and so forth. So we kind of tried to restore those things in terms of looking at how big the gap is between God and us so that we really see we need more than a theoretical savior. I don't even like to use that word anymore, savior, because we kind of mean uh, we prayed this little prayer, but we don't really mean someone who we absolutely desperately have to be rescued by and delivers us from real evil things, the power of sin, the power of demons, the power of this world system that causes us to become a complete new creation. He doesn't just reform us or moralize us a little bit. He gives us a complete new heart, motivations, attitudes, and empowerment through his grace to live. So with that, uh, we are actually looking at uh, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the only bridge. And we are looking uh, uh, at him in some detail, and in, in, uh, you might call it an introduction to the theological discipline called Christology. And... Um, so turn me up just a little bit on this so I can beat out the young, young people. And uh, uh, so the, uh, we're looking at um, uh, different aspects of Christology, and we've been on that for six weeks. If you look at Roman numeral four, or let's jump back to Roman numeral three, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, it talks about God, our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, the, the, the inhumanity of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we looked at, actually, uh, we started with two weeks on all the I am statements uh, in, the, in John's writings, especially the Gospel of John, and um, particularly his use uh, and standing in Christian tradition of redeeming worldly things, his use of the concept of the logos, which was a Greek concept, although it was used by a Jewish philosopher at the time named Philo. Then we uh, 
we looked, uh, began to talk about the crucial role of Christology and why what we say about Jesus matters and who Jesus is. Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And everyone has an opinion on the historical Jesus. Every religion has a view of the historical Jesus. Islam ha- says, oh yeah, we, we think highly of Jesus, in their opinion. Um, and they would say, uh, we think Jesus is a prophet, and his disciples messed up what he really was, and tried to claim he was God and so forth, and they, get, they got it all messed up, and God had to send Muhammad to correct the situation. That's a major teaching of Islam. Uh, Christian science, uh, Mormons, all have a Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. So that's, that's important. Who do people say that I am, and, he's, and who, do, who do we say that he is? Uh, in 1 John uh, 5.12, he says, whoever has the Christ um, has, has God, and whoever does not have it does not have God. So that's, that's important. So then uh, the last two weeks, we've started to get into various attributes of Christ. When you study the attributes of God, um, you would uh, apply those both to uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are three persons in one being, all applied to the attributes of God. In fact, one of the most important attributes of God is the Trinity. But when, you, uh, when we get into uh, these attributes of God, we're studying primarily what is called didactic teaching. We've done a lot of teaching in this church about what it means to find God in the word pictures, the metaphors, the case laws, uh, the, the history, and so forth. But we want to also just look at what does the, Jesus, the Bible just plainly teach about Jesus. So we define didactic is uh, in scriptural usage, usage, didactic is a straightforward or plain language teaching or doctrines that contain theological, moral, or exhortative instruction to which the aesthetic and literary uh, considerations have been subordinated. Now, we looked at the deity of Christ in that respect. We looked at the humanity of Christ. Last week, we looked at what it meant that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's uh, very misunderstood in these days. And born of the Virgin Mary and why it matters. And why if you don't see him as, uh, you, you know, they in what they call the mainstream liberal Protestant churches, over 90% of the pastors do not believe in the virgin birth. And if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you have nothing. You have left the bounds of Christianity. So that's uh, important. So today we're going to look at three things about Jesus. And uh, great, by the grace of God, we summarize a little quicker than usual. So... Uh, Hopefully we'll get through all three of these things today. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus intentionally lived his life as a pattern for the church, for us corporately, and for us individually. Jesus is the ultimate example of humanity. You want to be a better woman? Study the Gospels. You want to be a better man? Study the Gospels encounter the living Christ in the pages of Scripture, and, and as God recreates you to be more Christ-like, you will be more the human being you were intended to be all along. Unless the human being that's been damaged by your sin, other sins, etc., etc. So, uh, 
Then we're going to look at the fact that Jesus grew in grace. If you begin to start, understand some of the hu human aspects of Christ, it can be very, very, very encouraging. I talk to people all the time who are struggling with big problems, little problems, depression, uh, sanity, keeping their sanity, um, being too harsh, critical, and judgmental, uh, lust issues, addiction issues, appetite issues. Uh, we have problems. And Jesus was faced every problem we faced, yet without sin, and in the power of his resurrection and by the power of his outpoured spirit, we can actually live in his victory. We can dwell there day in, day out. We can continue his mission in the earth together as a, as a local expression of the body of Christ. So the more you begin to meditate on the Gospels, the more you will actually grow in the things of Christ. So uh, we're going to look at uh, also Jesus' baptisms as a, um, as a uh, prototype or an archetype. Uh, there's one of Jesus' uh, three baptisms that he encountered that I didn't put into the notes, so hopefully we'll discuss it anyway. So let's look at the first point we want to make today is that the life of Jesus Christ is your model. Um, you know, in, in industry today, the, the idea of a prototype has become uh, something that most people understand that you've got to get the first one right. You can take years to get a prototype right, but once you get it right, you can mass produce it. And people always wonder, like, why did we invest so much time in the leadership team and, and we didn't, weren't even that big a church and we weren't doing much and so forth and just growing, 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 taking, doing theology classes and, and getting people through a large list of foundational books and intermediate books and so forth. Because we have, we, we are not going to grow the way the megachurch people grow. We're never going to measure success by how many people come through the turnstile or how many butts are in the pew. We're going to measure success one person at a time by how much more radically they and further they went with Christ. And if we can't, if we can't take uh, today's lukewarm, complacent, half-compromised, uh, confused Christians and bring them into the glorious liberty of the sons of God, then we haven't done anything. I'm not interested in measuring success by having a bigger quantity of people coming and a bigger, nicer building and a bigger budget. I'm interested in measuring success by having a culture where there is no divorce, where all the marriages are good where all the parents know how to raise kids in godly ways, where every Christian knows how, not just to share the gospel, but to make a disciple and walk them through to maturity. So let's look at this. Jesus himself was our prototype. Let's look at what he has to say in John 13. I want to give us a little context for John 13, by the way. There's four Gospels, as you know. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes called the synoptic Gospel because the, the prefix S-Y-N or S-Y-M in Greek means the same. So symphonic music, 
means uh, phonos, means sound. It means a variety of different kinds of instruments and sounds that, that work together, uh, complementary. Uh, synthetic means that you blend two antithetical things into one uh, thing that has a, uh, a common thread or a synthesis. Synoptic, we all know that optic or optometry or ophthalmy means see. And so the Matthew, Mark, and Luke see Jesus in similar ways. Luke has nine chapters of material that Matthew and Mark don't have, but otherwise those gospels overlap quite a bit. John wrote his gospel after he'd read the other three, uh, probably not until 66 to 68 AD. Uh, you'll still hear in even conservative Bible schools that he wrote it in 90 AD. Not, not correct. Uh, can't go there. But John is aware of the other three, and he is purposely helping us have a perspective on Jesus that the other three doesn't have. And he anticipates that people are going to say, why is there so much about Jesus in this gospel that aren't in the other gospels? So he actually says toward the close of his gospel, he says, many other things Jesus did... And I suppose if they were all written into a book, not even the world itself could contain all the books. So um, John covers the Passover supper in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Then he covers Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane in, cha in chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they cover the Passover supper, they focus on that one would betray him and the others would deny him and flee. And the institution of the covenant meal, which ironically means we would never betray one another. We would be co covenantly committed to even to the point of laying down our lives for one another. So uh, the, the, the other writers focus on that. John 13, 14, 15, and 16 Jesus focuses on, I'm about to go be with the Father, and I will only be with you by the Spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm coming to you by an, out, uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit greater than what you've experienced in the Old Testament, greater than what you experienced in my ministry, greater than what you experienced when I sent you out. Uh, what, what Jesus talks about in John 7, 37 through 39 the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. At Pentecost, I'm going to give you the Spirit to be with you, to guide you, to empower you, to equip you to continue my ministry. And so he's telling them the very most important things. Now, Jesus has a way because he's the most biblical of teachers in the Bible. Uh, he follows the Bible's pattern of laying the most important thing first. So the first thing he covers in John 13 is the most radical thing in the whole Bible. And it's the most unappreciated lesson. It's the most important lesson of the whole Bible. Sorry, I get emotional. He takes off his robe, he girds himself with a towel, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, that would be a little bit like if you know, Barack Obama came to our church and, you know, all the Secret Services pulled up and everything, and he came in and didn't sit uh, in the pews, but said, no, no, no problem. Can you mind if I use a little water? And he goes downstairs with a bucket and gets it, uh, fills up a little water with soap and everything and starts to wash all the cars in the parking lot. 
we would be like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, that just, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we don't expect, we expect, you know, leaders to live in great houses and have special privileges and better budgets and more power in lot in, and everyone to serve them. And Jesus says, I'm done with all that. I'm creating a whole new model of what it means to be a leader. It means to give your life as a ransom for many. To I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I wasn't born in a palace. I was born in a manger. I didn't have any stately form or appearance that you should say, wow, he, you know, he looks like some famous movie star or something. I don't know. Or, you know, he, he was just an ordinary man doing extraordinary things by the power of the Holy Spirit in our model. And so he teaches us this, and it not only applies to his servant leadership, but it applies to everything about him. And he says this, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am, one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example. Now the Greek word there we're going to look at in a minute could be translated pattern or copy. I gave you a model. You want to be a leader? Go start washing some feet. You want to be a leader? Uh, teach someone to drive that doesn't have a license. Uh, whatever. Serve in practical ways that no one's going to even notice. I gave you a model that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. In other words, he's saying, this is for you. If, you know, don't be a consumer of counseling and and teaching and, uh, and nice meetings and so forth. Be a giver. Be a server. <laughs> don't blow a trumpet and be noticed. Don't need an attaboy and a pat on the back. Lay down your life to serve. Uh, if you know these things, you're blessed if you think about them. Oh, wait. I'm sorry, that's the new new translation. You're blessed if you do them. Now, those of you who've been through a lot of our teaching or those of you who come on Tuesday nights, the series we're doing on Tuesday nights at Wright State, I'm thinking about doing the same series at Cedarville, um, is about rediscovering and restoring uh, all of God's patterns, that is, biblical Christianity. And the Bible is full of patterns, in models. The Bible makes it very clear, if you've read through the scriptures, if you read the New Testament, uh, maybe you're five to seven times to get at the beginning of your Christian life, and maybe the Old Testament three times or so to get, that would be the way to get like started in the Christian life and get a foundation. And you'll notice there are patterns all the way through. 
In Exodus 25, Moses is told to make a tabernacle. And that tabernacle is modeled after, is a copy or a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. And it's the whole point is that God wants to tabernacle among men. That's why it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And God is progressively bringing the tabernacle of the kingdom of heaven into the earth and making the earth the fullness of his tabernacle. And so uh, he says, make sure you build it according to the pattern. No modern new adaptations that will be new and improved based on American marketing methods. Get back to the pattern. That's the whole, what the whole point of this uh, series is about. That's the whole point of pretty much all of the series as I do. So remember that concept. That, 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 those verses in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9 and verse 40 are quoted in Hebrews 8, 5 and Acts 7, 44. Uh, those of you who come on Thursday nights know we're going through the book of Acts, and we just did Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, and he talks about the pattern. So... Um, this is crucial. Jesus is our ultimate model for everything. You want to know what it's like? I, I'm really into biographies. I love biographies. I grew up on biographies. I read biographies of all sorts of adventurous guys, you know, generals in the Revolutionary War, uh, uh, people who fought Indians, Indians who fought white guys, uh, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse. I read biographies, biographies, biographies. And, uh, I love biographies, but the ultimate biography is the Gospels. You can meditate on Jesus in the Gospels the rest of your life, and it'll be a journey worth taking. But there will be no destination the, because there's only going further in, in the experience of him. First Peter says, you are, have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example or a model or a pattern for you to follow in his steps. Now, there aren't, you can't go to a Christian bookstore today and find books about fellowshipping his suffering. You can find books on the abundant life and being an overcomer and prosperity and all the things God wants to do for you. And you, can, you can't see a bunch of Jesus messages on Facebook that aren't just little shallow ditties because nobody wants to follow Jesus in his sufferings. But that's what the call of the gospel is. It's at, that's the good news. Paul says a very interesting and controversial verse. Do we have Jason downstairs today, or is he setting up the party or whatever? Jay, uh, if you, it was before we did podcast. You could ask on Vesh or whatever if they could find it. But Jason did, uh, we, I uh, think John, I, and Jason tag team when we were first kind of figuring out who was going to teach and different things early years on Colossians. And Jason covered very, very well the verse about how Paul says, I do uh, my part to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings. A very controversial verse, right? Because there's nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings except your experience of entering into the fellowship of them. So, um, 
it's a shame that fellowshipping Christ in his sufferings is not a more popular theme in Christian circles today, but you can't be his disciple. In other words, he, Jesus is saying it's a law of spiritual physics, so to speak, if such a thing exists. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a law of the way creation works that you can no more jump off the Empire State Building and say, because I'm on a certain kind of drug, I know I can fly. Uh, many have you know, thought that through the use of uh, various psychotropic and psychedelic drugs, but uh, they didn't fly. And you cannot be his disciple if you're not taking up your cross, denying yourself and following him. He gives you crosses every day. And he gives you that chance to wrestle out and with God and say, not my will, but thy will be done. And every day you get a chance to experience the kingdom, which is, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father, Jesus said. He didn't come to do his will. Hebrews 1, in talking about his deity, says, I delight to do your will. For uh, First Timothy, uh, Paul says this. This is an amazing verse if you think about it, and you might cry. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those uh, who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's how testimonies go in America today. Oh, I was lost and I had was battling depression or I was a kleptomaniac or I, you know, I was really rebellious or I was addicted to this or that and so forth. And then I found Jesus and I've been just living for Jesus ever since. I want you to know my testimony is I was all those kind of things. And then I found Jesus. And then I started living for Jesus. And then sometimes I was living for myself. And some of my most audacious sins have been after I became a Christian. <laughs> you probably wouldn't go to this church if you knew some of them. And uh, <laughs> uh, I have really failed the Lord. One of my favorite things to meditate on is what must have been going through the mind of Jesus and the mind of Peter when Jesus looked at him in the Gospel of Luke after Peter had denied him for the third time. I think on that often, and I weep. The real truth of the Christian faith is you received a new heart, you were born again, you received the Holy Spirit, you were regenerated, and you have stumbled so many times on the way. Not only have you stumbled, you just plain turned to a different path. <laughs> you, you find, like Yogi Bear, you found a fork in the road, and so you took it. But, uh, but it, it was, <laughs> you know, it that you know uh, what I love about this. His perfect patience is simply this: I minister to people all the time that say. You know, I've really grown so slow, and, you know, I haven't gone through what we call the first five steps, and I'm, I'm struggling with all this and that, and I've been wayward, and I've really messed up over here, and I'm just afraid God's going to give up on me. Or, 
Sometimes they sort of have that concept, and they're, they're like, I'm afraid you and Grace Christian Fellowship are going to give up on me. And I always say this, we will give up on you when Jesus gives up on me, which hopefully you understand means never. Never. Paul was a murderer, <laughs> and he was pretty headstrong at that. Um. Now, that's the example Jesus gave us. That's so amazing that Paul breaks into worship. Just like if you really understand Paul's writings, every now and again he's covering a certain aspect of Christ, and then he just starts worshiping. <laughs> so after he talks about the example of Jesus' perfect patience, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, a thousand Christian songs have been written out of those verses over the years. We sing a couple of them with those scriptures in it. Uh, that's awesome. Jesus is the ultimate model. You want, if you're spiritually confused, you want to know, you know, it's a little trivial, but what would Jesus do? You know, the reason people just have that you can't know what Jesus would do unless you spend hours, spend weeks, spend your vacation, spend your Christmas breaks reading and rereading the Gospels. Find the living Christ that the word, written Word of God is about. And go beyond knowing him abstractly and theologically and Christologically and know him experientially. Let's move on. Now we're going to look at Jesus grows in grace. Now, what you need to understand is we've been covering, and we're going to look at a little more, I think, next week, that Jesus not only was without sins. Now, who finds that a bit mind-boggling? I've never had probably, I, I'm pretty con confident that I've never had 15 minutes without sins, plural. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, we have so much self-righteousness in the church today. Listen, we, we're despicable me, and I've never seen the movie, nor would I want to, but <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> uh, probably wouldn't want to see that one. Uh you are, we could sing songs about ourselves, we're despicable, unreliable. No, you did uh, I ought to know something by now. But all right, so Jesus is actually born like Adam and like Eve without a sin nature. Temptable. But they didn't have a sin nature immediately until they failed the test. And we're going to look at the temptation in the wilderness next week, and we're going to see how Jesus did not fail the test. But he went through all the tests that every human being has ever gone through. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his conception, as we covered last week. Yet, Jesus had to grow in wisdom and in grace. Wow. Now, grace, if you know the definition, is not just uh, 
unmerited acceptance, but grace is empowerment, transformation, the ability to obey, the the ability to become God-like. Jesus had to learn obedience. Luke 2.52 in the NASB and also the ESV and the New King James, arguably the three best English translations on the market today, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That Greek word for favor is charis. Actually, um, those of you who can speak other languages, more, it's more like charis, charis, something like that. <laughs> but, uh, um, but it's the word for grace. Jesus grew in grace. Now, uh, English translations mostly say favor because we can't conceptualize the idea that Jesus had to grow in empowerment and ability to do his ministry. But he did. Wycliffe translated it this way, and Jesus profited in wisdom, profited back in those days. Uh, Wycliffe is in the uh, 1500s. Uh, or 14 minutes. Uh, Jesus profited in wisdom, age, and grace with God and men. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to one who was able to save him from death. Ever read about the Garden of Gethsemane? And he was heard because of his piety, or his, you know, we, we always have to water these things down because it, it means because of how much he feared God. <laughs> Although he was a son, He learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obeyed him the source of eternal salvation. Now, learn is the Greek word mathaneo, means to increase in one's knowledge. It's not just uh, the learn one time, but it's a process word. Increasing in one's knowledge, uh, hearing, learning to use by by use and by practice. Becoming, in the sense of it becoming a habit or becoming accustomed to something by, by doing it over and over. He learned obedience by obeying and obeying and obeying. Uh, having been made perfect is the same root word as telos, which uh, Christ is the telos of the law, the goal. He is the purpose. He, Jesus became the purpose of humanity. He became the ultimate human being. He was made the the perfection that we're supposed to look for. Um, you know, by his temptations and by crying out. Isaiah 53, 2 says that that uh, he grew up before him, God the Father, like a tender shoot. Uh, in other words, he grew. We always read uh, Isaiah 11 in uh in Advent time, which says there will be a, a a branch that will grow out of the root of Jesse, right? Speaking of Jesus' connection to David and David's lineage and being the true king of Israel. He grew in wisdom, grace, obedience, sanctification, amazingly. Now, uh, this is important. I, I wish I had more time. If you look, if, take the time to look at those next two verses, 1 John 3 and Philippians 3, because, you know, Paul, J- 
John is saying this. John is actually giving you a way to know if you actually have hope in you or you need to be asking God to give you more hope. And you need to be pursuing hope. Because he says we... I, we might as well get into these, but I'm just going to get me behind. Um, how great a love the Father loved, has bestowed on us that we're children of God. And we, it has not yet appeared what we'll be like, but we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Now, instead of like relating to verses performance-based, Oh, if I'm not purifying myself like he is pure, I got to really start working on purifying myself. No, he's saying that is a tool God's given you to realize that you have less hope inside you than he wants to put. So when you really have that hope, you will become more passionate, more intense, more disciplined, more diligent about seeking purification uh, and seeking hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if you don't see that as like an all-consuming thing that you wake up thinking about, that you pray about, that really disturbs you, if you that I've got to be more godly, then you don't have that hope working inside you. So don't just try to be more godly. Cry out to God and figure out how to experience more hope. Because Jesus is the ultimate model of becoming more and more godlike because he grew in wisdom and and grace, even though he was always perfectly godlike. Figure that out. So Paul says toward the end of his ministry, Philippians is one of the jail epistles written uh, in Acts 28 when he's in jail. Toward the end of his ministry, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. You know, the biggest hindrance that I have in helping people grow in Christ is that it's part of the whole evangelical culture today that everyone is a know-it-all. Everyone said, I grew up in church. Yeah, I've only read the New Testament like half a time. I haven't read it 10 or 12 times. I haven't read the Old Testament seven times. I haven't really uh, cast out many demons, or nor have I uh, cleansed many lepers. Or, but, I, but, you know, I, yeah, I, got, I got this. And you can't challenge anybody about anything because we are masters of defensiveness. And what my first discipleship technique is I just walk with someone and love on them for one, two, three, four years before I even try to start challenging them to grow. Because we just don't even have it in us to want to grow that much. That's just not part of the Christian culture today. Most Christians are just not desperate for more of God. Listen to a great John Piper sermon this week about fasting, and I don't listen to other guys' sermons very often, so this was unusual. And uh, but he made a great point. He said everyone teaches that the reason Americans don't fast and don't use that tool of grace is because we're uh, lazy and undisciplined and self-indulgent and so forth. He says I don't think that's the root cause. The root cause is we're just not that hungry for God. And the tr- truth of the matter is, when, when you get to about 12 to 16 hours in a fast, you're going to either be hungry for God or you're going to be ordering a pizza. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's as simple as that. So um, I thought that was a great point. Well, let's look at, uh, boy, we only got five minutes, but let's look at the baptisms of Jesus 
as the model example architect. Now, the baptisms of Jesus are really biblical math where one plus one equals one. But they're really actually one plus one plus one equals one, just like the Trinity. So biblical math, one plus one can equal one, and one plus one plus one can equal one <laughs> when God says so. And uh, <laughs> um, so Jesus, always filled with the Holy Spirit, comes to John. I don't have time to read all the scriptures. Hopefully you've read them. I've listed for you all four accounts in the Gospels there. He comes to Jesus, uh, or he comes to, to John. He uh, says it's permitted to fulfill all righteousness. He gets water baptized, and this one in whom was born of the Holy Spirit, who always had the Holy Spirit, who had enough anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing out of his life to confound the Pharisees and scribes with his questions at age 12, now at age 30, has the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. What? <laughs> and God the Father speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now that goes back to a Hebrew tradition that the, the Son inherited the Father's business. Remember Jesus said, in, when they said, Joseph and Mary said to him, Where, what were you doing? Why did you hold back in the temple? And, and he said, didn't you know I had to be about my Father's business? <laughs> So the father is saying, the father would, would wait till his son came to a certain level of maturity, responsibility, who really no longer was a selfish little adolescent brat and now, now represented the, the family's interest and the family's well-being and was devoid of self and more into what the family required. And he would say to, in the marketplace, this is my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. So look at all the accounts of God speaking that over Jesus. In some cases, the second account, he says, listen to him. Your life depends on whether you can hear his voice. John 5 says, a time is coming and now is when the spiritually dead will hear my voice and those who hear will live. You don't get saved by praying the four spiritual laws. You don't get saved by coming to Grace Christian Fellowship regularly. You come to pass out of death and into life when the words of human Bible teachers or the words of Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, you start hearing them for what they really are, the words of Jesus Christ speaking to you. And those who hear will live. And the sign of their life, just like a baby has vital signs of life, will be that their complete life is changed in radical ways. If you're still, still basically selfish, shallow, narcissistic, so forth, you may still really need to be born again in a biblical sense. You're certainly not fully converted. So, Jesus is baptized in water, He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to look at after he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's another step with the Holy Spirit. No one likes to teach this step. Uh, even the Charismatics and Pentecostals don't teach this step. That is, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. <laughs> Just want you to know, you're all, <laughs> that's, uh, you're all destiny. And, uh, and when he learns how to walk by the power of the Spirit and not in, 
his own humanity and so forth. Then he comes out in the power of the Spirit and begins to make disciples and proclaim the kingdom and cast out demons and so forth. And that's the journey God's taking all of us on. Now, Jesus had a third type of baptism. There's a few of you who know what it is. So, I, uh, Sam, do you know that one? Some, somebody, some of the people. Uh, we just covered, I think, this past Tuesday night. Um, does anyone know what the third type of baptism is? Logan Newton knows this, but I think he just left it run on an errand or something. Okay, remember James and John, they were climbers. They hadn't quite got this wash the feet message yet, right? So they want to sit at God's right hand and God's like, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I, I just wonder about that. Like, I'm just hoping that I'm, that God will give me binoculars because I know I'm be so far back in the stadium. I just want to be able to see Jesus, you know, like, I mean, like to sit at, I mean, how audacious, like, Lord, let us sit at your right hand, when's in your left hand when you come into the kingdom. He's like, you're not asking much, are you? Uh, and they got their mommy to come do it for him. That's when you know you're still a mommy's boy. <laughs> their mommy had to come do it for him. And, uh, and G you know, I love how Jesus named them the sons of thunder, but let's not go into, uh, <laughs> <what's>, <laughs> anyway, uh, I got only a minute. So the bottom line is he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism, which I am going to be baptized with? He's talking about the baptism that we call the passion of the Christ that we call his sufferings, the baptism that starts at Gethsemane and ends on Easter Sunday. And now a lot of Christians are really into promises. There's actually like promise boxes you can read, get that have all, like if I need encouraged, I just have John Gray send me a text. Like I just, I'll just like, like John, te text me. And John will text me, you're the greatest. Thanks for being a great pastor. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not alone. Like all of you get those kind of texts from John, right? And uh, I, Jesus just loves you and you're a wonderful guy and so forth. And uh, every promise in the book is mine. There's, you know, there's those that's actually a song that Christians used to sing. Every jot, every tittle, every line. So Jesus gives them a great promise. He says, my baptism you will be baptized with. You're going to become firsthand acquainted with my sufferings. In fact, in the case of many of you, you're going to actually die for this too. Just want to leave you with, with closing thoughts with... <laughs> That's a promise that God can keep. Well, next week, let's get into his wilderness temptation, his, uh, more of his sinless life, and his ministry. Amen.